I know this sounds horrible. And I feel so guilty for saying it. And Tuix doesn't deserve to die. But I want Neelix back. Trekno Babble, Psycho Babble, where art, music, politics, philosophy, and especially psychology meet far beyond the stars and where few have gone before. I'm your resident Trek nerd, Elizabeth. And I'm also your student of humanoid psychology, Elizabeth. Wait. This is better. How about Tuvix? Our mission each week is to boldly tackle an idea or ideas through the lens of our beloved franchise to seek out and explore new perspectives about who we are and who we could be. This week, Elizabeth and I are again looking at Trek allegories over hot-button social issues. This time, we're dealing with mostly accidental abortion allegories, because irony is the only true constant in the universe. First up, it's Up the Long Ladder from TNG's second season. It aired in 1989, was written by Melinda M. Snodgrass, and directed by Vinrich Colby. The Enterprise receives a very old distress call from an all-but-lost Earth colony centuries old. What records exist are confusing. The colonists took with them advanced technology of the time, as well as pre-industrial implements and cargo. 225 Yoshimitsu computers, 5 monitor beacon satellites, 700 cellular comlinks, 50 spinning wheels. Spinning wheels? Cattle. access Chickens. A device used Not for spinning DNA, yarn or thread, which consists of a large hand or foot-driven wheel and one spinning tapering rod. Data. When they arrive, they seem to have discovered the descendants of those with the pre-industrial mindset. Self-described utopians, if you're curious. Their planet is on the verge of being destroyed by solar flares, and so Picard agrees to beam aboard the 223 Irish cartoon characters and their animals. <laughs> Meanwhile, Worf is suffering from a disease that usually affects Klingon children, continuing the tradition of embarrassing Worf at every opportunity. Dr. Pulaski is kind enough to cover for him. He thanks her by inviting her to the Klingon tea ceremony, a rare gift for outsiders. After some onboard shenanigans with their guests, Picard learns that the diametric cargo belongs to a sister colony, which piques the captain's interest and obliges him to investigate. The other colonists could hardly be different from the Brinloidi, the Irish cartoons. They are relatively technologically sophisticated, and the world is highly neutral and sterile. In more ways than one, too, the Mariposans are entirely a group of clones who have given up sexual reproduction altogether. Tell me, is your entire population made up of clones, Prime Minister? Clones? Clones? Clones. Only five of the colonists survived. So, they used that expertise and turned to cloning. Yes. Now, after 300 years, the entire concept of sexual reproduction is a little repugnant to us. Well, how did you overcome the problem of replicative fading? We haven't. Each time you clone, you're making a copy of a copy. Subtle errors creep into the chromosomes, and eventually you end up with a non-viable clone. We need an infusion of fresh DNA. I was hoping that you would be willing to share some tissue samples. 
You want to clone us? Yes. But since they aren't a willing Irish lass showing off her ankles, Riker declines to donate his. He and Pulaski beam down to help repair their technology, so the Mariposans kidnap them and remove their DNA without consent or knowledge. With Geordi's help, they discover what happened to them, and so beam to the lab where their clones are already being grown. Will and Kate vaporize them before they've finished forming. With that option off the table, Pulaski makes the radical suggestion of solving the problems of both groups of colonists by insisting they rejoin each other. Cloning isn't the answer. What they need is breeding stock. To bring Lloyd. Yes. They have the energy and drive, and the clones possess the emotional maturity and the technical knowledge. For 300 years, we have denied the carnal side of our nature. How can we learn to put that aside? Uh, well, <clears throat> you, you, you put a young couple together and you let nature take its course. Now, if this is going to work, you're going to have to alter your society too. Monogamous marriage will not be possible for several generations. So it'll be best if each woman bring Lloydie and Mara Posen had at least three children by three different men. <laughs> right, well, now let's go and stake out my three women. Send in the clones. This is charming, apparently. And so the Enterprise leaves another society irrevocably changed. You know, I'm remembering the Lower Decks episode where they revisit the planet that, like, where, again, another TNG episode, they were like, oh, you're addicted to something, and now we're going to interrupt your trade? And, like, like Lower Decks goes back and be like, what happened after? Picard was absolutely right. It was the best thing that ever happened to us. Look, we even made a mural. See, there's the Enterprise leaving us with no drugs. And here's all of us freaking out. We were in a bit of a bad place for the first, oh, 10, 14 years, but we figured it out. I want a Lower Deck, se- deck episode about this. <laughs> I want to find out what yeah. happened. I would like it to turn out that these people have become unbelievably sex positive, like kinksters <laughs> in, in the combination somehow of these two um, radically different social visions. Yeah, it, this, is, um, this is a, a messy episode, to say the least. Yeah, it- Um I feel like we've watched a lot of really good TNG episodes recently, and this was not one of them. Nope. No. Nope. Not a good episode. Has its moments. There are moments that I enjoyed. Um, but uh, the one thing we can say about this episode is that its allegorical elements are not by accident mm-hmm. um, compared to the episodes we're going to talk about a little later. Uh, Snodgrass, who also wrote Measure of Man, of course, uh, you remember that episode that yeah. we covered in our first uh, podcast. Um, was specific to the producers, like, this is about two things. It's about abortion and it's about um, immigration. And although those things are present in the script, it's like, I think it got so fucked up by the producers by this point that it just, it's all over the place. And the the comedy, quote unquote, with uh, the Irish people and stuff, it just... Uh, Sir, would you happen to be married? No, why? No. Uh, Well, uh, you see, sir, I have a daughter... Felicitations. Oh, she, she's a fine girl. She's not usually as sharp-tongued as that. Donald! <laughs> the last thing I expected. <laughs> Sometimes, you just have to bow to the absurd. It's kind of hard to watch, to be honest. Yeah, that was cringy and, like, bad <laughs> stereotypes. Um... 
Yeah, and just I felt like very two-dimensional characters for the most part, um, especially yeah. Brenna. Like, I don't think they intended this, but like she's on the cusp of having a personality disorder, which I don't think they intended. But like that <laughs> was really funny. What do you mean? Uh, the fact that she would like hate someone one second and then like be absolutely adoring of them the next, and how that was really predicated on whether or not she thought someone had power. Isn't that just like a man? You make these grandiose decisions, but you never stop to consider the poor women. This is going to work. These people will need your strength. What does he do again? Prime Minister. Hmm. Sounds like he might have more than two coins to rub together. Three husbands. Uh-huh. Like, that is, that is almost uh. describing borderline personality disorder. I didn't think of it that way. Yeah, I think their intention was just to have her be like, oh, you know, it's not sexist, even though it totally is, but it's not sexist because the women are the only people who aren't drunk all the time in this society. And <laughs> Yeah, no, I, it was completely unintentional and, like, bad, again, bad stereotypes, not a good episode. It just was funny. It was just was really yeah. funny for me to watch. <laughs> Heard. Um... What's not funny, and I, but is, I think, a pretty effective scene is uh, near the end when we finally get to the, like, the point of the episode yeah. uh, when Pulaski and Riker, you know, they discover pretty quickly that they've been tricked into mm. being cloned and they beam down and Riker immediately vaporizes his clone when he finds it. And he looks over at Pulaski, who like nods her head in consent, and then he vaporizes her clone. It's like there's no... Um, discussion beyond the point that like these are your clones and you decide what happens with them which i think that part is very intentional mm -hmm. in the script and it establishes and i think this is important in terms of the legal framework here that people have those rights to yeah. their genetic material without going through some sort of other arbitration process it's like it's your clone you do what you want with it mm -hmm. and if you want to destroy it that is your choice so you're saying that's kind of like the legal precedent in the Federation? I think so. And yeah. like with our trans allegory episodes that we talked about, you know, abortion has never been dealt with explicitly at this point, mm -hmm. point of recording um, in Star Trek. So we have to only kind of infer what the legal parameters are yeah. um, based on what we see and where autonomy and consent and all those kind of things, where those lines are drawn in, in other ways. Yeah. And, you know, and I think even today, you know, like the legal framework and boundaries can still be different from the morality that various people share, you know, in yeah. up until recently, abortion was legal in all parts of the United States. And now it's selective, which is, so messed up in so many ways. Like, why should where you live, like, within the same yeah. country, have such a drastic effect on what rights are like you have to exercise? So, different tangent, different soapbox, but there you go. <laughs> yeah. But when the Prime Minister Granger, like, comes in and sees that they vaporized the clones... Murderers! Like hell, you're a damn thief! Gentlemen, please! What else can we do? We asked for your help and you refused us! doesn't matter what the legal precedent is he's just like you just killed people right and it's possible that within the i mean we don't really know what the clones with the mariposans laws are at this point yeah it's 
you know, there's a, again, this is a messy episode in a lot of ways. So like the prime directive doesn't really come up, even though it kind of should, but I guess because they're humans, it doesn't count, Mm -hmm. even though they're humans removed from the Federation, whatever. Um, But all of that is kind of nebulous, but obviously he calls them murderers and they're not like, they don't even entertain that accusation. They're like, that's, that's your opinion guy. That's not how our legal system defines it. Yeah, you know, it reminds me about, um, it reminds me a lot about embryos, you know, like, there's a lot of debate about, you know, if, like, couples do IVF and they create multiple embryos, and let's say they have a successful pregnancy, but they still have, like, six embryos that are frozen, some people could say, if you throw those away, you're murderers. Like, that, that, is, yeah. a, that is a one-to-one argument that some people have, and um, this whole area is so gray, you know, and... I definitely can feel myself noticing, like, when I want to respond, I'm definitely speaking from, like, my own position and my own opinion and my own stance versus saying, like, this is the psychologically sound, healthy way to view this. So I just also want to put that disclaimer out there that, like, I don't agree with that argument that if you throw away embryos, you're murdering someone. I personally don't believe that, but that's my personal opinion. And I feel like I'm going to have a lot of those um, in today's episode. So throwing that out there now. Yeah, um... I don't think we're going to make any success in hiding our opinions, <laughs> um, <laughs> which Just is fine. Just in this one I, episode. The rest of them were very fun. neutral. That's not true at all. <laughs> um, no, but I, I appreciate that. And, and I, I do like that there's um, it, there's a there's a separation to, made, to be made between ethics, legality, and psychology. These are different and ways of looking at And morality, exactly. Yeah what ends up happening with what are morally gray issues a lot of times is you find an emotional trigger of some sort Mm. that transforms the argument on one side or the other or both into a seemingly black and white issue so in the in the case of trans rights which are another hot button at this moment in time a time of recording hopefully not forever um you bring up the idea of children and trans kids and their rights and the rights of their teachers and parents and all of that. And it becomes very sensitive for people because people feel as though children's innocence needs to be protected at all costs and all the other nuance gets thrown out the window. It becomes a black and white thing for some people because of that emotional trigger. And I think similarly with abortion, you, you know, you, you throw out the word murder And, well, that's ethically, (laughs) we tend to look at murder as pretty black and white, even though we don't actually, like, people have, you know, when it comes to war or some people with self-defense, capital punishment, there are lots of areas in which there's no debate about whether or not someone is being killed or not, but we still don't have black and white um, distinctions on whether or not it's murder. Yeah, it's like murder itself has a, a mostly, if not completely, negative connotation, but murder is not the only way to kill people. Right. Yeah. Right. And that's that's something we're gonna we're gonna circle back to. Likewise, one thing that this episode started me getting thinking on, and has it continues in the other stories we're gonna we're gonna look at here, um, is this idea of so the Mariposans by necessity became cloners they know they stopped having sex because there were only five of them and that would have been genetic suicide right that would be viable for a society and that makes sense um but it's this idea that through technology and development human beings 
are able to regulate their society in a way that natural biological processes on their own don't allow for. Mm -hmm. You know, it is our genius that gives us that capability. So you look at someone who is making a, has a quote unquote pro-life stance Mm -hmm. and looking at the Mariposans and you say, well, they did what they had to do to, to live, to literally have life in their society. And that's one of the things that I think is a misconception about people who are pro-choice sometimes is this idea that it is somehow anti-life or Mm anti-birth and it's, it's not (laughs) Um, plenty of people who uh, either approve of or, 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 or themselves get abortions, want families, want to have kids. It's just a question of, well, we're in a society that allows people to have control over when and how that happens. And that's okay. I mean, birth control is a relatively new thing. I mean, there's been versions of condoms that have existed for centuries that, like, the old condoms are terrifying. Do you know what they were made out of? I thought it was, like, lambskin, right? And te- lambskin and, like, intestines. Oh, like uh, like sausages. Yeah, yeah, like sausages. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, I'm really glad that technology has improved. But, like... Really, like, it's very recent that women now have the ability to choose when and how to have kids. It used to be, I'm a person that has sexual needs and that, and this is like a a consequence of that, whether I like it or not, you know, that used to be where it was. More often than not, sexual obligations. (laughs) Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. Yeah. And, And I like the way you frame it about it being more of a, like, how do you, how do you consciously choose to create the family in the future you want? And one of the arguments that the Mariposans make that I thought was really compelling was, you know, they they really just, to justify their actions, especially taking the genetic material from Riker and Pulaski, they said, We're desperate. Desperate. And that gave you the right to assault us, to rob us, and we have the rights to survive. I want the cloning equipment inspected. Who knows how many other tissue samples were stolen. We certainly have a right to exercise control over our own bodies. You'll get no argument from me. I know the Mariposan culture seems alien, even frightening. But really, we do have much in common. They're human beings fighting for survival. Would we do any less? What's often so lost in the abortion debate is really putting yourself in the other person's shoes. Of like, you know what, if I had been in that situation, I can see why you made that decision. You know, it's not, mm. it's not a decision I'm happy about. Or it's not a decision I would make in a different situation, but just like really getting that you're like, you know what, in certain circumstances, I can get it. And, and I wish more people were able to just to have that empathy for something they didn't even agree with, but at least they could understand it. Yeah, it would certainly be a start. I mean, it's such a polarizing issue. It would help to at least have that level of compassion and empathy. Absolutely. Up next is an episode that probably deserves its own show on our part, but we have to peel that bandage off at some point. Tuvix was written by Andrew Shepard Price, Mark Gaberman, and Kenneth Biller, directed by Cliff Bowl, and first aired in 1996. Neelix and Tuvok, after a typically odd couple clash over, let's call it style. Mr. Neelix. Yes. Do you think you could possibly behave a little less 
like yourself. Beam back to the Voyager with an alien flower they planned to cultivate for food. What emerges on the transporter pad, however, is none of these individual beings, but a new hybrid of all three, although the flower's presence is mercifully absent in his physical appearance. The crew eventually come to understand that the flower itself, along with other tech-tech-tech, caused the odd couple to undergo symbiogenesis. Symbiogenesis? Symbiogenesis? Symbiogenesis is a rare reproductive process. Instead of pollination or mating, symbiogenetic organisms merge with a second species. It's an interesting idea. But we're talking about microcellular organisms here. Neelix and Tuvok were broken down to a microcellular level during transport. DNA, protein, all in a state of molecular flux. It's the best theory I've heard so far. It's the only theory I've heard so far. This new being, who opts to call himself Tuvix, shares all of his progenitor's memories, abilities, and feelings. Ironically, the result is a remarkably balanced individual. Tuvix brings a little humor to tactical and a little logic to the mess hall. Without a safe means to restore their comrades, the crew slowly accept that Tuvok and Neelix are gone, and Tuvix is here to stay. Kess is the last holdout, having lost her partner and her mentor. But as she begins to accept the change, Kim and the doctor, weeks after the initial accident, devise a viable scheme to reverse the process and restore Tuvok and Neelix. The problem is that Tuvix tells them, I don't want to die. Tuvix is, of course, sentient, and the doctor can't violate his oath to override Tuvix's wishes. So it falls to Janeway, after a difficult conversation with Kess, to perform the separation herself. She forces Tuvix to the sickbay, he forgives them for what they have chosen to do, and she kills Tuvix in order to restore Tuvok and Neelix. Her actions are precise and calculated, but we see her when she's done, alone, racked with the weight of her decision. Oh man, we're finally doing Tuvix. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. We, <laughs> when we first started this, we even were like, we're going to have to do Tuvix at some point. I know. Well, here it is. Like I said, band-aid, rip, rip it off. Yeah, uh, rewatching the episode, um, preparing for today, I was really struck by, you know, Kess's experience in the whole in the whole episode, and just how much he wrestles with accepting Tuvix and mourning the loss of of Neelix and of Tuvok. Like you said, it was her her lover and her mentor. Yeah. If something happened to Tuvok, if Neelix were here, he'd be the first person to comfort me. And if I lost Neelix. Tuvok would be the first person to guide me spiritually. Now I don't have either of them. You have me, Cass. Thank you. But... I remind you of what you've lost. It's not your fault. It's one of those moments that tug at your heartstrings when, like, right before Tuvix gets the call from the doctor, Cass is like... I've been doing a lot of thinking. And I'm hoping that we can be friends. Uh, I would like that very much. <laughs> and I'd like our friendship to grow. You would? Yes. But it's going to take time. I'm not going anywhere. Doctor to Lieutenant Tuvix, please report to sickbay immediately. Like, the fact that she got there and then, like, ugh, just like punch in the gut, you know? I was trying to think about what she was going through, and it reminded me a lot about this term that I've heard called ambiguous loss. And um, I know it from um, Elliot, you and I have a dear friend, 
um, whose mother had dementia and Alzheimer's. And, and she told me about this first, mm. where the person you love is still alive, but they're so fundamentally different that you are mourning the loss of the kind of relationship you used to have with them. And you're faced with this new way of being with them. You know, that some can sometimes be like after an illness. Sometimes it can be, you know, after a breakup, you know, like, hey, I know my ex-husband is still alive, but I have no contact with them. Mm. And like, so it's very different than someone dying, essentially. And that's why that's what makes it ambiguous. And just how much that can frame what Kess is going through. Like she's lost the relationships with Neelix and Tuvok that she had. But then there's this new person who all in all seems great. Tuvix <laughs> is a great guy, you know? Um, and, and so like, how do you mourn what you've lost and also somehow start to accept what is what you have now? I think it relates to what the crew of the Voyager is also going through. And they talk about that in the episode too. You're experiencing what people on this crew have been going through since we first got stranded in this quadrant. Do we accept that we're separated from our loved ones forever? Or do we hold on to the hope that someday we'll be with them again? I struggle with it every day. Sometimes I'm full of hope and optimism. Other times, <clears throat> I dream about being with Mark. And it's so real. And, uh, I know that someday I may have to accept that he's not part of my life anymore. This idea of acceptance is interesting in terms of how it <laughs> how it relates to our theme for today. Um, I want to come back to that. Um, but yeah, Kess's whole deal, uh, you know, I've watched this episode uh, many, many times over the years. Um, and I have a lot of very specific thoughts that I want to get to that I actually wrote down because I wanted to make sure I said them correctly. But the thing that occurred to me on this rewatch that was interesting was the fact that so Tuvok and Neelix are both men um, mm-hmm. and they're both uh, they're both cis men. And, you know, so I guess it's lucky or contrived, you might say, that they're the two that are combined in this accident because we sidestep all gender <laughs> um, questions of what would ha- what would it have been if if it had been uh, a man and a woman who had been combined in this mm-hmm. way, what would that mean? What gender would Tuvix be in that context? What would it mean for Kess to have lingering feelings for someone who isn't um, a man? I mean, we saw in our episode last week that while possessed by Tyrion, she had very fluid gender and sexuality because of that occupation. So we, we get there eventually with Kess as a character, but it they sidestepped, probably wisely sidestepped all those other interesting questions, but it just occurred to me as something that could have been um Yeah, I in there I agree. I think that was a good choice on their part. Like you don't want to get too distracted with all like what are you actually trying to talk about and like how do you do that concisely without all this extra stuff like yeah, added in. Absolutely. But it would have been interesting, you know, and especially like I think the combination of a man and a woman not only raises an interesting gender and sexuality question, but is a lot more similar to like how, you know, how 
historically and quote unquote naturally babies have been made. Right. So it would have like been a little bit more toward this abortion allegory. Mm. But I think this episode we don't don't have none of the writers have actually said that this is an abortion allegory. It was just for the first episode, the TNG one, right? Correct. Correct. So okay. I do want to yeah. address this like why why are we talking about Tuvix on an abortion episode? And I I I wrote this down because this is important. So Okay. Bear with me, please. In the United States, at least, many states are pushing for and passing laws which force women to look at ultrasounds of their fetuses before being allowed to have abortions. There are billboards everywhere with photoshopped images of fully developed babies inside uteruses with sad puppy eyes begging for mommy not to kill them. These kinds of manipulative tactics exist to obscure the issue at the heart of the moral imperative behind abortion rights, consent. If you believe in God, then you might believe that all successful mating is by design and that each of those lives is meant to be. That's your right, but it is not your right to impose that perspective on anyone else. Barring that theological framing, morality dictates that human beings have the right to consent to having their genes used to create new life. We decide to have children, and unless or until we provide that consent, the process of fertilization and gestation is nothing more than that, a biological process. In The Enemy Within, which Elizabeth, I know you probably haven't seen, but I'll explain what's necessary uh, later. Kirk did not consent to have himself split in two. The fact that his two halves were objectively less useful than the original made that decision to destroy the split halves in order to restore him relatively easy. But at least one of the two Kirks was begging to be allowed to exist. I don't want to. Don't make me. Don't make me. I want to go back. Please! I want to live! Tuvix, on the other hand, shows that he is a great guy, useful, friendly, sympathetic. He is a living ultrasound or billboard ad. Many provisionally pro-choice people hide behind the fact that nearly all abortions take place well before the fetus begins manifesting brain activity or anything like sentience. Destroying a fetus is not the same as murdering a baby. And while that's true, it is true, the fact remains that, barring complications, the fetus would inevitably become a sentient being before long. So let's not hide. Abortion is a right because consent is a moral imperative. Tuvok and Neelix did not consent to being combined into Tuviks. As difficult, as gross, and uncomfortable as the idea of ending a life is, if one believes in the consent of creation, there is no moral alternative. If the episode has a conceptual flaw, it it is indeed that this issue, just as contentious in 1996 as it is today, is subsumed into the drama of the story instead of being spelled out in dialogue. But I don't think dialogue to the effect of what I've just read would have been allowed past the censors any more than having Neelix and Tuvok begin a romantic relationship would have been at the time. This is Trek using the science fiction camouflage to make a bold progressive statement that flies just under the radar. Janeway looks Tuvix right in the eye as she completes the procedure herself and restores Tuvok and Neelix to life because she and the Federation believe in consent. But the burden of upholding this very difficult position takes an obvious toll on the captain. The, one of the arguments made by people who are anti-choice is essentially that, you know, your choice as a person who is being forced to give birth does not overrule the imperative for the life to exist and it's murder so they say um and 
oftentimes pro-choice people will respond by pointing out the fact that a collection of cells that is not viable um, is not the same as a human being or a baby, right? It's, it, it is um, biologically distinct in that way. And that's true, and I don't think there's, there's any harm in pointing that out, except for the fact that it's also true that, like I said, barring any complications, it would become a baby at some point. So why is a certain stage of development the cutoff that we decide to make in terms of, well, now it's a human and didn't used to be? I, I feel like when one makes that their argument, it leaves too many holes that can be poked by the other side. So you're, you're saying that if this was a discussion around consent, like we're having the wrong argument, essentially. Exactly what I'm saying is that so okay. we, we, we the episode uses science fiction to take it to the extreme where forget the fetus cutoff thing. Tuvix is a per, sorry, Tuvix is a person. He is definitely a person with feelings. He's a, not only a person, he's a great person. In some ways, he's better than the alternative. The episode is really clear about that, right? And, and yeah. Janeway says, it doesn't matter. That's not the point. The point is no one asked Neelix and Tuvok if they were okay with this. Yeah. And in the end, I mean, we have to take the implication of the fact that they were like, okay with this. They didn't beam back down to the planet and beam back up with the flowers so that they recombined into Tuvix. They clearly, they were happy to remain themselves. Yeah, it, it's a compelling argument. And... I still, my heart still aches for Tuvix. There's, there's no good solution. No, there's just like a, a hierarchy of, of ethics, mm -hmm. which is kind of how I see this. And it's, it's the reason I, I really do appreciate this episode as an abortion allegory, because it doesn't make it easy. <laughs> and yeah. I think regardless of where you stand on this issue, sometimes if you haven't gone through it, um, it's easy to reduce it to something much smaller than it than it probably is for a lot of people emotionally and physically, financially, mm -hmm. all kinds of things, right? You know, if someone needed my heart to live, no one can force me to donate that or any part of my body, even if it would mean saving the life of somebody else. Like, I have to consent to that. And so that sense and right to bodily autonomy is given to all people except pregnant women. And so I think framing it in terms of consent is, is a really interesting way to look at it. I'm going to be thinking about that for a while. Um, I did struggle with this episode and I also struggled with um, the Enterprise episode just because like suddenly we are talking about sentient beings who have consciousness and will and like that makes it that makes it a it makes it a very different like set of things to consider at least for me like I noticed mm -hmm. like I, I consider myself very pro-choice and I like was struggling to watch these episodes and like wrestling with like the moral implications of all of it yeah and I think sometimes it's one of the reasons episodes like this are misunderstood is that mm -hmm. that discomfort implies that the episode's telling you you're wrong for... Oh, yeah. Well, it, it can feel that way. Like, if you, like I, saw that and you're not comfortable with the idea that maybe abortion is killing something, even though I still think it's a right that should be upheld, you might want to distance yourself emotionally from that 
possible interpretation of reality. Um, and so an episode like this that doesn't let you do that um, can, can feel adversarial in, a, in, a, in an uncomfortable way. And that's, that, for me, that's why I love it. <laughs> that's, that's what yeah. I like about Star Trek when it's great like this. And, and I brought up The Enemy Within, which I don't believe you've seen. It's like the fourth or fifth episode of the original series. And I'll just give you a really brief rundown. Kirk gets split by a transporter accident into two halves. It's kind of thought of as his good half and his bad half. It's definitely a, an episode we're going to talk about um, through a psychological... Okay. Is it kind of like Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde? A little bit. But there's this idea okay. that, yeah, kind of. Uh, uh, like Kirk, um, who the, the, the quote-unquote good Kirk, doesn't have the conviction of will to make decisions. But mm-hmm. the bad Kirk is like well, a rapist, <laughs> like has no, has no, has no self-control, right? Has, has, oh, abs- okay. it's all, he's all id. Um, th- they obviously need to be recombined in the end and they do. And he's a balanced person and all that. But what's, what to me, what sticks out in terms of this relationship to Tuvix is that the id Kirk begs to be allowed to exist. He, he pleads to like, I don't want to, basically, I don't want to cease to be. Please. I want to live. And he's, just as much a sentient person as the other Kirk or Tuvix or any of these people, right? Look at me, Captain. When I'm happy, I laugh. When I'm sad, I cry. When I stub my toe, I yell out in pain. I'm flesh and blood. And I have the right to live. But they say, no, 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 you're doing this because original Kirk didn't consent to having himself split up like this. And no one accuses Kirk of being a murderer or that episode of, of being like pro killing or whatever, but people are very happy to call Janeway a murderer. And I think there's definitely a gender based (laughs) bias going on with that, with respect to that. You just blew my mind. Holy shit. Damn it. You're right. (laughs) I I also love Star Trek for the really challenging episodes it has that really make you think. Like, you know, I love being entertained, but I also want to be challenged and inspired and, like, you know, have an experience that, like, after having watched whatever it is, like, I am somehow better and different for having ingested this kind of media. And I love Star Trek for that. Mm -hmm. Um and what you're talking about as far as like it's really making the character or the the viewer sit with that those uncomfortable feelings um to f- bring psychology into this podcast um <laughs> so when a belief that somebody has is challenged people can experience what's known as cognitive dissonance and you can either go one of two ways one you can't tolerate that feeling. You can't tolerate how uncomfortable you are. So you reject whatever it is challenging you and you just find reasons to continue to believe what you believe because you just can't stand that uncomfortable feeling about being challenged, Mm -hmm. you know? And the way I phrased it makes it sound like, oh, that's not what you want to do. And ideally it isn't, but like we all do that to varying degrees. You know, like I'm not saying it's just people who are on the wrong side of history or whatever. Like everyone does that. Everyone has moments of cognitive dissonance where they will reject information and just continue to do what they want to do and justify it somehow. 
Everyone does it. Just be careful about what you're doing it on. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what I'm going to caution you on. So you can do that. Or you can learn to tolerate those uncomfortable feelings, which I think is the goal. You want to be able to tolerate discomfort enough so that you can form new beliefs in the face of new information. And that takes work to be able to tolerate those kind of feelings. Um, and it's something you want to strive for, you know, in in all parts of your life, you know, like, can I allow my partner to be mad at me? Can I allow someone to be disappointed in me? Or do I freak out and I try to avoid that happening at all possible? But can I actually be like, yeah, no, I can survive feeling that way. Can you survive the cognitive dissonance of your beliefs and your ideas being challenged? And ultimately, you don't have to change what you believe, but can you sit with the questioning of Finally, we return to Enterprise for the third season follow-up of sorts to Tuvix called Similitude. It was written by Manny Cotto, directed by LeVar Burton, and aired in 2003. We begin with a flash-forward that appears to be the crew of the NX-01 laying Trip to rest at his funeral. Two weeks earlier, we see Trip and Paul doing their whole we promise this is therapy and not an excuse for hot people to take their clothes off thing. Later, the Enterprise experiences an expanse anomaly-related accident while attempting to improve the warp engines. Trip is severely injured, saving the ship from even more damage. In fact, he's in a coma and on the brink of death. Phlox reveals that he just happens to have a larva that can become a temporary clone of Tucker from which he can extract neural tissue for a transplant that will save the real Trip. As it stands now, it may be Commander Tucker's only hope for survival. To ensure the tissue's compatibility, I'll have to wait until the symbiote reaches Commander Tucker's present physical age. Then I can excise the tissue from the non-critical region of the symbiote's cerebrum. It would experience no discernible side effects and should be able to live out its normal lifespan. It's 15-day lifespan. I don't make this proposal lightly, Captain, but I'm obligated to provide you with all available options. Meanwhile, the ship is stuck in this field full of increasingly harmful little magnets that are sticking to the hull. Archer really needs his engineer up and running soon, and so approves the use of the clone, despite DePaul noting the ethical issues here. Are you aware that the Lysarian Prime Conclave has banned the creation of symbiotes? We don't answer to the Lysarian Prime Conclave. Symbiotes are living, conscious entities. We'll be growing a sentient being for the sole purpose of harvesting tissue. I'm aware of the ethical implications. Archer, not for the first or last time during this particular mission, says that ethics take a back seat to its completion. Phlox takes on the role of surrogate father for the rapidly developing clone, whom he names Sim. In addition to Tripp's copied body, Sim seems to manifest Tripp's memories as he ages, as well as his skills and expertise. Oh, and his accent. I used to have a dog. His name was Bedford. He was so big, I could ride him like a horse. His unquestioned personhood becomes increasingly uncomfortable for Archer, who, after about four days, reveals Sim's nature to him and his purpose. Like his spiritual ancestor Tuvix, Sim 
over his brief life, integrates himself into the crew and develops relationships, the most complicated of which is probably with DePaul. Recall, as he ages, those memories which correspond to Sim's relative age to Trip emerge. This also means that Sim is soon possessed of Trip's improvisational engineering skills, which the NX-01 is going to need to escape the space magnets. That task completed, Phlox lets the other shoe drop. There's been a development. I'm listening. Sim won't survive the transplant. You told me you could remove the tissue without harming him. That assessment was based on symbiotes grown from Mycerian DNA. My tests on Sim show that human-based symbiotes are not as resilient. If I excise the quantity of neural tissue I need to save Commander Tucker, Sim will die. Did you come across any references to the Valandrin Circle? They claimed to have developed an enzyme that stopped the rapid aging process. Is there any truth to it? Why do you think he kept it a secret? Doctor, the enzyme is experimental, with very little empirical evidence to suggest that it works. That's why I didn't mention it. The fact is, I may not have to grow old and die in a week. There's a chance that I can live out a normal lifespan. Sim insists on being allowed to live, but Archer insists that he needs his trip back to complete this mission. After some difficult conversations, Sim consents to be killed so that his progenitor can be saved. Thus we see the funeral from the teaser was for Sim all along. We will never forget what he did for us and for the ship he loved so much. We will go forward with renewed determination to complete this mission so that his sacrifice won't just have been for the people on this ship, but for all the citizens of Earth. So just like with the TNG episode, we're dealing with cloning here as a, a sort of tangential or allegorical way of discussing the issues around abortion um and which is what one of the reasons i i chose it as one of the episodes for today and again we, we are directly confronted with this idea that human beings in our developed state can make conscious choices about the way in which we create life how and when and for what purpose and it does you know, in this case, with Phlox, especially in his history, it does border on eugenic territory. Not going to lie. Mm -hmm. It's a little, I mean, like everything, and you've said this before, you go too far um, and you've, you've entered a whole other sort of morally problematic area. But I think in general, human beings have made the choice to control to a certain extent the way life develops and, and creates for ourselves. And here we see that very specifically played out. Yeah. You know, to me, this was just like, oh, this is stem cell research. Like, mm -hmm. that's what the that's what they're taking on. It's this idea of like, do you create life for a purpose that is not about the life? But here, like, I don't think I could ever get on board, like, giving someone sentience to kill them. Like, do not go that far. But for the sake of sci-fi, here we are. Well, and... To be clear, they didn't know that they thought at the beginning that he that Sim would live his normal lifespan, which would have been 15 days and that the tissue extraction wouldn't have killed him. Yeah. T two things. One, part of the issue with this story is that the plot is clunky in that re in that regard to, to get mm -hmm. to their moral 
arguments, you know, there's a lot of weird contrivances and like, oh, suddenly humans will die if you do the extraction because we're so weak, I guess. Um, and also there was always this enzyme that a- allowed them to live for, it's just, it's like, what, there were <laughs> where did that come yeah, from? Yeah, there were a lot of red herrings in this one. Just like, wait, now this, now this. And yeah, the enzyme thing was introduced and over so fast. I kind of almost wish it hadn't been part of it, but yeah, you know, whatever. I'm not, yeah. I'm not in the writer's room. No, I know there, there was a more elegant way in my opinion to tell the story, but that's, that's okay. It's still for enterprise. One of the better episodes. Um, and I was going to say, like, I'm, I'm liking the Enterprise episodes that I've been watching. Good. Yeah, well, that's yeah. what happens when you go from season three and four <laughs> instead of seasons <laughs> one or two. Um, uh, the, the other thing that you, you, your thing about stem cells reminded me of is, you know, Enterprise is in this situation. And again, you helped me um, be a little bit more empathetic to this thing with Enterprise as a series in that it is a little bit more socially regressive than it's predecessor shows TOS DS9 TNG Voyager um but uh, and and the real world reason I believe for that is because this is this is the Bush years this is post 9-11 people uh, the states especially the United States was in a very reactionary political mood and so we, we we get those kinds of weird ethical backtracking happening um but it works kind of within the Star Trek timeline because it's a prequel. And so we can say, yeah. oh, human beings relative to their 1960s imagined future selves are a little bit less progressive and developed. It doesn't totally work for me, but I can almost get there. Well, I mean, you know, you know what apologetics are, right? Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah. That's what we're doing here. You know, <laughs> yeah. she's like, how do I make this work canonically? Like, and I'm like, oh, well, you know, they hadn't quite figured out all the progressive shit yet. It was the awkward prepubescent federation. Yeah, you know, Star Trek might be the first, like, fandom franchise that um, it created that phenomenon. Like, it's very po- common now with comic books, with Star Trek, Star yeah. Wars, uh, you name it. <laughs> um where there's that apologia is a big part of like, it has to make sense, but Star Trek um, was that way, you know, before the internet, people were already trying to like make it canon um, in a way that I think Make this fit, make it fit. (laughs) So there we go. You're welcome world. That's what Star Trek gave us is flame wars on Reddit. Uh (laughs) So despite the episode's clunkiness and also the fact that like, if you really did grow a human and they went from baby to old age in 15 days, like there's no way their brain would have developed that way. There's no way that like they would have gotten all the trips, memories and personality. Right. Like, like that, that whole thing is just like not psychologically possible, but you know, science, sci- sci- science and, and sci-fi and all that. Science. Um, yeah. Yes. Science. Science. Um, <laughs> but for me, like, I think I was really wrestling with this idea of like, we're going to create someone who's only going to be alive for 15 days. And, and there was something about that that really didn't sit well for me. And I I was thinking about it as, especially as it related to like the abortion allegory. And I was thinking, Oh, you know, there's in addition to like, you know, consent and whether or not somebody wants to have a baby and like all those talking points in the abortion debate Mm -hmm. there's also there's also the point about like non-viable pregnancies and 
And a lot of times people will use that as an example of why you should be allowed to have an abortion. You know, it's like, oh, hey, your baby is missing its skull. And when it's born, it won't survive for more than two days. You know, so why wouldn't you allow an abortion in that situation? Like, that's that's one argument that people make. It's an extreme one. Mm -hmm. But and there's a whole and there's a whole spectrum around that, you know, of like, what if there is something wrong with the fetus and your baby will be born, but might not survive for more than a couple of weeks. Like, what do you yeah. do? I don't know if there's a like right or wrong answer. It's just, it's, it's the Janeway conundrum that you're going to have to sit with and accept the consequences of that decision, whatever you decide to do. And, and then an even harder, I think point is like, there are some people who, if they find out their baby has down syndrome, will abort that baby and other people are like that is awful that's discriminatory you should not do that you know and so like there's like this whole spectrum of like what if what do you do when you find out the kind of life your child will have is is quote-unquote diminished in some way and i use that term very carefully because i think that's also a judgment versus like an objective fact and an observation Um, yeah 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 um, but you know, it, I, to me, there's this idea of just like that felt like this idea that a human, you're going to create a human who's only going to be alive for 15 days. Like I wouldn't want that for myself. Yeah. So it, it, there was something about that that like sit really uncomfortably for me. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad you referenced the Janeway thing again, because I, I agree that that is still like the best part of, of Tuvix and of like this whole framing is like, there is no easy answer. And that's, that is the answer is you sit with it, but also, um, you know, what we're calling a spectrum. And I, I agree with you, obviously that is part of what informs the decisions people might make around abortion and other things, you know, like I said, this can veer into eugenic territory. And this is an argument that people will sometimes make. It's the slippery slope fallacy of like, well, why? what if you find out your kid's going to have brown eyes and you want them to have blue eyes? Just have an abortion. And you know what I mean? Like there's that idea that if you make if you make it a choice that a person can make in an in a in a circumstance, which is I think most people would say is clearly, for example, like Sim, your child is going to live for days and is going to have no quality of life whatsoever. And there's nothing else that can be done about that. Um, why would you, one, why would you subject that person to a life like that? Two, why would you subject the person giving birth to that child to the trauma of giving birth when there's a much less physically and emotionally extreme alternative? All of that. Uh, but of course, like I said, it's that slippery slope that people, that argument people will make. And I think the the lesson here is you have to sit with that decision. And I, again, I'm glad you brought up Janeway because I think where Janeway shines in her series and her episode, um, Archer kind of falls. And I don't want to be, I've said a lot of mean things about Enterprise, but I don't necessarily hold this against the series itself. Like I think this might be deliberate in the way he's written. In that, you know, it comes to this difficult ethical decision and he, um, well, we talked about this in Damage a few weeks ago, right, where T'Pol is addicted to the Trillium. 
and Archer steals that um, warp coil, I think it was, right? Yeah. Um, in order to... Yeah. This is the same mission. They're on this existential mission for for the Earth and the Zindi and all that. And he he keeps confronting these ethical problems and just saying, well, I'm no happier doing this than you are. But we're not going to make a habit of it. Once you rationalize the first misstep, it's easy to fall into a pattern of behavior. I'm not rationalizing anything. I know full well what I'm doing. I can't justify this course of action. We don't have a choice. I won't let you do it! Why are you doing this? Because I have no choice. I don't have to tell you what's at stake. I must complete this mission. And to do that, I need trip. Trip. I'll take whatever steps necessary to save him. I'm just going to make the hard choice, but it's not hard because there's no wrestling. It's just, well, this has to happen. It's all pragmatism. For me, I think he knows he's making the wrong choice, like a wrong choice, but he has to do it anyway. Mm. So like, I don't, I don't think he throws out the ethics completely. I think he just realizes the line is not as clear as mm. he I naively wanted it to be. I, I'm glad. I'm glad you see it that way. I, I would like to have more empathy for Enterprise as a series and Archer as a captain. So that's that's good. You're helping me. We'll be growing a sentient being for the sole purpose of harvesting tissue. I'm aware of the ethical implications. If we weren't in the Expanse, maybe my decision would be different. But we've got to complete this mission. We probably shouldn't do this. This isn't ethical. That's kind of her role on the show. To tell yeah. Arthur he's doing a bad, to Archer he's doing a bad thing, and then for Flocks to say no, it doesn't matter, <laughs> let's do it anyway. Um, you'll, yeah, you'll see. Uh, but but then you know Archer makes his decision, and Sim is going to be, and Paul is put in this really uncomfortable situation where she didn't have, you know, it's like this thing happened against her what she thought was right, and she is emotionally compromised by the situation. I mean, he, you know, Sim is asking her out, telling her he loves her. They're showing a night at the opera tonight. Marks Brothers. So one of you're planning to go. I'll be reviewing the field coil equations. Oh. Well, what about dinner? You want to grab a bite? I appreciate the offer, but I'm afraid I have to work late into the evening. You're all I think about, if you know what I mean. And I'm not talking about an adolescent crush. That was, well, that was two days ago. This is much more serious the way I feel about you. What's driving me crazy is I don't know if these feelings are mine or his. I can't answer that. I just thought I should tell you this. Well, I still had the chance. You know, kind of, I think I think the idea is because he's a little bit younger than the trip that, you know, our mm. trip. He's, he's not quite as emotionally mature, so he's just sort of laying it all out there. Um, I think that's the idea. Or it might just be that he knows he only has days to live and why waste that time? Yeah. It's all it's all very interesting. But in terms of how it relates to our allegory, there's this sense of, okay, unfortunately, sometimes people are left with uh, decisions being made for them around abortion. And that could be on either mm-hmm. side. That could be, uh, obviously unfortunately being legally forced to carry to term uh, or being pressured by a partner to have an abortion when you don't really want to have one. It could be either. But in either case, you're left with a life 
now at some point it is a life and what do you then do with yourself what is the I, I, and that is a real question, Elizabeth, <laughs> um, to you as a therapist. What do you do with that helplessness? The sense that you did not have control over the thing that you that happened. Well, I mean, we've looked at a number of really dysfunctional parent-child relationships on this mm-hmm. on this podcast, and I think some of that comes from this idea that you're thrust into parenthood before you want to be or. You know what I mean? In circumstances that you didn't choose. Let me put it a different way. You were robbed at some point of a choice around the issue of abortion. Mm -hmm. And that theft leaves you feeling uh, wronged. But you're also now responsible for a, a life that you're supposed to take care of. Where do you put that feeling? I don't mean this as a cop out. I mean it more of a disclaimer, but like the specifics are going to be different for everybody. So like there's not an answer I can give that's going to work for every person or every situation. Mm-hmm. Um, like the, the details are up to you. When people feel like they're helpless, like when something happens to them and they feel like they haven't had control over a situation, and now they're left in the wake of just something that happened to them versus something that they deliberately chose. Um, it's really important to regain a sense of autonomy and to figure out where you do have control in your life and what you can do and what you can choose. Um, Cause ultimately like none of us has complete control over our lives. Like we can't control what happens to us, but we can control how we respond is, is kind of the cliche saying, but it's also true. Mm-hmm. A really psychologically healthy way to help recover from that is to find where you do have choice and where you can exercise that choice um, and then doing it. And then with the life, you know, like to say you have, you have a baby now, you know, and you're responsible for someone else's life, making sure that the it's not the kid's fault. Like I think, you know, so definitely making sure you don't place that anger and that blame on this tiny helpless infant yeah. um you know because it's not their fault they just showed up and um you know recently in my in my school program we talked about the lifelong process of adoption and just how traumatic adoption can be <laughs> you know so even if you like decide to give the kid up like that's still a lot of things that that kid is going to have to work through through for their entire life and keeping them is also its own set of, you know, challenges. It's like families are complex and hard. And that's where all the, you know, the shit hits the fan and the rubber meets the road. It's just really important for the parents to get clear on where they do have control in their lives and what they can do and doing that. And then raising the kid, letting the kid be a kid. Like the it's the parent's responsibility to take care of the child and making sure that the child doesn't take on undue responsibility when it's before it's developmentally appropriate. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It's it, it's a big question, you know. So I don't. But that's my novice answer.
So what are you going to do? Drag me down to sick bay? Force me onto a bio bed at gunpoint? What we're looking at here are our interpretations of these episodes as abortion allegories, even in the case of Up the Long Ladder, which in which the author was explicit that that was something, uh, a part of the episode that she wanted to be um, in the allegory. With art, it doesn't really matter. It's like you bring so much to it. And this is what we're bringing to these episodes. There are other ways to look at them, and that's fine. But I do think that Star Trek is consistent in this regard if we're looking at these things as abortion allegories in that it always prioritizes consent, frankly, over life. And to me, that is radical in, in, in a good way mm. because as we talked a little bit about in Tuvix, when it comes to life... <laughs> Um, it can be really triggering and polarizing and becomes uh, an incredibly difficult topic because obviously we lament, it's universal amongst human beings to lament unfair death and murder mm, and yeah. um, it, 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 it obscures what is otherwise an issue of autonomy. And so I, I am really grateful for Trek uh, having that kind of clarity even if it mm-hmm. isn't quite brave enough yet to dire- directly address the issue, but we'll see. I personally had a really surprising reaction, like rewatching all these episodes. I consider myself like pretty pro-choice and like pretty se- very secure in that stance. And for especially the Tuvix and the Similitude ep- episode, I was just like, oh my god, this is so hard. Like, th- like, I'm having way more reservations about what is the right thing to do hmm. than I thought I would. And I, I appreciated being challenged in that way, as uncomfortable as it made me feel, because I can tolerate discomforting emotions now. And like you said, like, these shows, you know, art can be interpreted in many different ways, in, including interpretations that the creators did not initially intend. Right. And... And also, like, you know, when we're watching a show, like, the audience is actually helping create the story. Like, what the audience brings to the table, like, individually, becomes part of the narrative. Like, we're not just passive receivers. Like, we actually overlay meaning and intention and ideas upon characters that might... The the, the writers might have had no intention <laughs> of just someone... Being like, oh, this character looks, you know, angry in this moment. Yeah. But it's a, per- a particular person who maybe is dealing with anger who sees that character and is like, oh, I bet they're angry right now. And somebody else might see that character, like, emoting. And someone else be like, oh, they feel really convicted. You yeah. know, or just like the different ways we will read into what characters are doing based on just like what we're dealing with at the moment. You know, like what we're bringing to the table. It's interesting to view these stories as abortion allegories when they don't have to be read that way and mm-hmm. when there are other ways to read them. And uh, even reading it that way, even with that kind of just like intentional overlay, I was still challenged in a way, again, a way I didn't expect. And I appreciate art that can do that. Definitely. And that's, that, that is the power and danger of allegory of any type, which we've talked about before, but it's, it's, it bears repeating. Mm-hmm. 
uh, is that it allows you to talk about a subject that is uncomfortable without really, quote unquote, talking about it. But it also leaves yeah. much more ambiguity in what is being said. And, you know, I mean, I'm reminded of you talking about this projection issue in a much more lighthearted context when we did a voyage home and the, the whale probe um, conversation mm. and how oh, yeah, what yeah, you yeah. and I both saw in that conversation that had no subtitles was very, very different. Um, yep. And that's just what that's just the risk you take when you make art of that type. But that's 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 also the reward that is possible. Um, so there are no other than Sim briefly, uh, there are no literal babies uh, being portrayed in any of the episodes here. Um, and I guess some of the Irish people had babies, whatever. Um, <laughs> but the, the, what, the, what we do have is like these kind of sci-fi you know, especially cloning come, has come up, come up a couple of times. Send in the clones. I must be out of my mind. Um, and what I what I think is helpful about that in terms of turning the allegory is the fact that we view cloning particularly and certainly what happened to Tuvix, the symbiogenesis transporter accident thing, as artificial, an artificial means of mm-hmm. creating life versus the naturalistic, uh, you know, coitus <laughs> producing, you know, uh, insemination and, and creating life that way. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the dichotomies that's set up in the TNG episode um, between the Bryn Lloydy and the Mariposans is this stark difference. Look at him. How could we ever integrate that into our society? You're no prize yourself. Primitive, hostile, disruptive. There are so many difficulties. Look, man, we are decent, hard-working people. <laughs> we are willing to learn. They're so different. For 300 years, we have denied the carnal side of our nature. How can we learn to put that aside? Uh, well, <clears throat> you, you, you put a young couple together and you let nature take its course. I feel like in the artificial context, it's much easier for us to emotionally detach from the implications of ethical choices that we make. Whereas when it's something that's quote unquote natural, oh, the bees and the birds do it and the plants do it, you know, whatever. Like, we have this romanticized view of the creation of life that gets in the way of looking at the underlying ethics. And so that is why, to me, these things that are about creating life in this artificial way point to abortion abortion allegories and give us a, a clearer lens through which to view those choices. Yeah, art is a lie that helps us realize the truth. Yeah, Picasso. You know, I mentioned this earlier um, in the episode, I think in the t- when we were talking about Tuvix, but what to me makes these allegories like even more challenging if you look at them as abortion allegories is the fact that there are conscious adults who are being asked to give up their life. And like that's a very different situation than, than unviable biological material. Like, those are so different. And, like, I, I wonder if that's where I was challenged by the fact that, like, if there was someone conscious who said, I, didn't, I don't want to die, like, that makes it harder for me, I think, you know, in the, to, like, go the same way as I would in a different situation. And 
I don't know if I have an answer. I just know it's tough. It's, it's for me that's really hard. It makes me t- it makes me pause in a way that there, there's something about like the development of that life makes a difference as far as like when when and how this allegory works, you know. I think the point of looking at these things as allegories is to create this sort of um logical brick. <laughs> Or logical brick wall, that's a better way to put it. Like a logical wall against which you can push and see how far away you are from it. Um, hmm. The topic of abortion is is nuanced. It is um, complicated and it is not fixed. It's kind of quantum that way. Star Trek loves quantum, right? And it's, it's always eluding a specific definition and... And that there's nothing we can do about that. We can't change that reality. But as you say, that discomfort breeds controversy. And yeah. the this the the antidote, it's not a solution, but maybe a treatment is what I think what I think you brought up earlier about having empathy and compassion is looking at it less through the harsh extreme of I'm judging you for having a different view of this than I have and more. Mm-hmm. I need to put myself in your position and ask myself how I might feel if things were a little different for me than they are. If I didn't have the privileges that maybe shield me from making this difficult situation, which I need to mention as a cis gay man, I'm never going to have to make this choice almost certainly. And so I'm exempt um, from that in a lot of ways, which I just want to acknowledge publicly. Um, So yeah, the empathy is important. If we'd had the ability to separate Tuvok and Neelix the moment Tuvix came aboard, I wouldn't have hesitated. But now, in the past few weeks, he's begun to make a life for himself on this ship. He's taken on responsibilities, made friends. I count myself as one of them. So at what point did he become an individual and not a transporter accident? You know, I'm a cis, heterosexual woman who, like, hopes to have a baby at some point. I don't yet right now, but I, I definitely want that on my own terms. And I have a lot of privilege by living in California where that the right to abortion is very much protected. I feel a little distant, you know, from the people for which this is a much more dire and immediate situation. Yeah. And there's some guilt around that, I think, for me as well. Of Like, I should be fighting for the people in you know, a Southern state where this is not legal anymore. And like, why aren't I more, why aren't I more enraged? Does my, my, and that privilege gives me that comfort and that distance. And, uh, and I'm not always comfortable with that. And it's a good, it's a good reminder. I think for me that like, this is still very relevant and very real and something that needs to be protected and fought for. And the truth is, like, you you probably know someone who had an abortion. Whether or not you actually know, like, it's very common. I think one in three women, you know, um, in the United States ends up having one. That's so many people. And we don't talk about it. I got a plus sign and you know what that means. Jesus Christ, I'm just 17. There's no plan A, there's no plan B. Unless you know you got the do-re-me You better not fuck in Texas Texas
your comment earlier about um, how you how you have grown um, and your ability to handle uh, cognitive dissonance and uh, that discomfort through therapy got me thinking about a topic that we haven't quite covered in this episode, which is crucial um, to the topic of abortion, which is healthcare. And the fact that abortion is healthcare, and the fact that in the Utopian Federation, healthcare is free for everybody, including mental health therapy and obviously access to uh, physiological medical procedures. And that's one thing I just I wanted to close out on is one, whatever your views, I hope you seek out accurate information about what abortion is. And, and what it isn't. Two, if you are inclined to have some sort of activist voice in, the, in protecting and expanding the rights to abortion and healthcare in general, um, it's, it's money, it's expensive, especially in places where we live, like in the United States. It's, all medicine is absurdly expensive and exploitative. But um, if you can't have access to an abortion and you're potentially taking on a, a whole other life to look after and raise and pay for, that in addition to the cost of the medicine itself, I mean, I, I hope people have the empathy and compassion to understand the gravity of what that is. So yeah. that that's my suggestion about where that focus needs to go. Having arguments online ironically enough, is probably the least productive thing you can do <laughs> in that regard. As much as that's your favorite activity. Yes, exactly. Um, Elizabeth, I want to thank you. I thank you every week, but I want to thank you, especially this week, for talking about this very difficult subject. Um, we did it. We yeah. talked about Tuvix. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> we worked the Band-Aid off. Exactly. You know, I thought I was nervous about the non-monogamy episode. I was so much more nervous coming in to record <laughs> this. I'm just like, what are we doing? Okay, here we go. Um, but no, I really, you know, I enjoy our conversations as always. And um, just thanks for your insights, you know. And it's important to talk about this stuff. And it's not black and white, you know. And so I hope that we have illuminated the gray, you know, if, if for not other people, at least for ourselves. Agreed. Thank you so much. Uh, we're going to give ourselves a little break on heaviness for next week and we're going to talk about meaning on the holodeck we're going to do a couple of lower decks episodes we're going to do it's going to be lots of fun yeah (laughs) i'm and i'm really glad last time we talked about lower decks you had barely seen any so now you've become i think a fan so i'm really happy about that yeah no i've watched i've watched i've watched the whole series i love it it's great excellent so that's going to be fun look forward to that conversation with you thank you uh and thank you to our listeners and patrons as always uh, subscriptions, comments, emails, all those things are very welcome. We appreciate your support. Uh, with that, Elizabeth, I will see you next week. See you next week.